Um, today we're going to be in the book of Job, and we're in Job because uh, for this past uh, the summer, still in it actually, uh, I've had a class where we started in the book of Genesis, and we have read all the way through Song of Solomon, and it's been incredible. Uh, I've never done this, but the phrase, this um, saying sounds appropriate. It was like drinking water from a fire hose, uh, where it's just a lot coming at you. Um, plus, that sounds like it would hurt. I don't know, fire hoses powerful. Uh, but the book of, while reading in this class, what stuck out to me was the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. So books like Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and um, Song of Solomon, uh, Ruth and Esther and Job. And through all of this, this one chapter uh, stuck, it just got me. And so I want to share that with you. When Wayne asked, hey, could you preach? I said, yes, I will. And it's going to be Job 28. Um, so uh, this Job 28 is a poem about wisdom. And uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask for your participation. I haven't had youth group in a while. We, we take a break over the summer, and I love just interacting. And so I'm just going to, can we do some word association this morning? If I say the word wisdom, what comes to mind? Just raise your hand. And I, what comes to mind? Wisdom is the first word that you think of. You guys missed the razor hand part. Okay, yes. <laughs> Smart, yes. Scholarly, what, what else? Yes, old, good. Fear of the Lord, good. Oh, you're like way ahead. All right, you're, you figured it out. Yes. Uh, I had gray hair, old, because the Bible you know, talks about with age comes wisdom. Uh, I also had discernment, thinking of, you know, wisdom means being able to make the right decision in very tough circumstances. I want you guys right now to think of some people uh, in your life. The participation part is over now, just thinking your head. Uh, what are some of the people that come to mind when you think of wise people? Uh, you know, wh- who are those people? Maybe in your life specifically, who in your life do you consider to be wise? Um, maybe from the Bible, who is known for their wisdom? Obviously, there's Solomon from the Old Testament. Uh, maybe even Moses or David, and then in the New Testament, uh, Jesus, um, Paul, John. Some very wise people. As a kid, there were a couple. Uh, Uh, fictional characters that always came to mind when I thought of wisdom, when I thought of a wise person, uh, these fictional characters were immediately present. Um, So they're fictional. Don't, it's just a story. But these three, um, Dumbledore from Harry Potter. Yes, he's, he's, if you don't know, uh, he is the headmaster of the academy there and he's very smart. Then there's Gandalf from Lord of the Rings, my favorite childhood story. Uh, and then there is Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia. Hopefully you're familiar with at least one of those storylines. And if not, they're great. You should read them. Um, but all three of those are very wise characters in each of those worlds and in those stories. They are, uh, yeah, just they are known for their wisdom. And while I identified more with the adventurers when reading those books, uh, each world, this wise counselor, this mentor, advisor type person had was leading those adventurers along their path, uh, comforting them in times of despair and leading them onward towards their purpose and pushing them towards their goal. Uh, What do all, if you know these stories, what do all three of these uh, characters have in common besides their facial hair? Um, Maybe that's got to do with wisdom. I'm not there yet. It is the fact that they have this perspective that no one else has in the story. They 
have this big picture in mind. They have a larger view of what is happening and how it all fits together. And unlike the rest of the characters who tend to deal with the immediate and the present, which is still important and necessary, these wise characters uh, look way down the road and plan accordingly. And in the moment when I'm reading these books, I, I would get frustrated and be like, why didn't this person help in this way? Or why didn't they do this? And then pages, a few pages go by or chapters, and it's like, oh, they knew. They knew something. It all makes sense now. Um, so I bring up these examples just to help us understand a bit of the role that God has specifically in the story of Job. It's this larger picture, uh, this big perspective, knowing how everything works, and that's, that's God, um, and the rest of the characters don't have that perspective. Um, now, many of you are familiar with Job, but I want to do some recapping because we're starting right in the middle, Job 28. And so I just want to refresh us about what Job is about, the, the book and what, he, and what the person goes through because uh, it's important for us to, in order to understand what the author wants us to understand in this poem in Job 28. Um, the book of Job raises certain questions about the world and about God, uh, questions that are still relevant today. Um, and these are questions that are really difficult to answer, questions that um, people struggle with. Uh, questions like, is God just? Does God, um, is this world run on the principle of God's justice? And how do we explain something like Job's suffering if we worship a good God? These are the questions that come up in Job. Uh, the book of Job can be viewed uh, as a court case, almost, where each party uh, presents their answers to these questions. And they come forward and they say, this is what I believe. Everyone in the book, of the book of Job, thinks they have it figured out. They think that they know how the world works. They think that they are wise. And immediately, we're introduced to the characters of the story. Uh, you don't have to turn there. I'll just I'll bring us up to chapter 28. Immediately, we're introduced to Job. Uh, Job is described as a blameless and righteous man. And not only that, but he is successful and wealthy. Um, and this makes sense because in, uh, according to the Proverbs wisdom, uh, those two things go together. A uh, Proverbs wisdom correlates your quality of life with the decisions that you make. So if you make good decisions, you should have a pretty good life. Uh, also, if you make poor decisions, you're going to have a poor life. It's not promises. It's just a, a general principle that Proverbs presents. And so far, when Job is introduced, uh, he falls into that category. He's a blameless and upright man, so he's a good guy, and he is successful and wealthy, so his quality of life is pretty good. Uh, it says that he's got 7,000 sheep and thousands of camels and donkeys, and yeah, it's a lot, and apparently it's very, very wealthy in that time. Um, we're then introduced to the next character, who is Satan, or Satan. Uh, his name means the accuser. And he comes to God thinking that he's got it figured out. He's like, God, I know how the world works and how humans in the world work. And he wants a chance to prove it. And that's when we see Job go through everything terrible under the sun. And in just a few verses, Job loses his livestock, everything that made him wealthy, his servants, and his children. I mean, just absolutely devastated. Loses everything. And yet we are told in 
chapter 1, verse 22, through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Amazing. Just absolutely amazing. And an incredible example to us. And so Satan is proven wrong. And God allows Satan to test Job again. And this time, time directly at Job. And Job starts to lose his own health. And this is when we're introduced to Job's three friends. Because Job has hit rock bottom, and he's going to let the world know about it. He's got a lot to say. And so we uh, start this discourse between Job and his friends. And Job is going to state, remember that court case type view, he's going to state his side, and then a a friend is going to state their side, and back and forth, back and forth. And so Job, when he is writing in those those chapters of coming, coming to the court, answering those questions of God's justice and how the world works, he says, I am innocent. Going back to that Proverbs wisdom, this is not, uh, I'm in, I haven't done anything. So therefore, this suffering that I'm enduring is not divine punishment. This isn't because I made some poor choices. I'm innocent. Uh, it's not divine punishment. And he concludes that either God doesn't run the world by justice or that God is just unjust. Um, so he's kind of calling God out in these moments. And then a friend will come, and the friend, all three friends have the same view, and they say, no, 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 Job, God is just. Uh, God runs the world by justice, and they conclude that, Job, it's got to be you. God is definitely just, so the problem is you. You've done something. Think about it. Look back in your life. Uh, You're wrong. You are in the wrong. there's another character. It's actually after Job 28, and he comes to the court too. His name's Elihu. We know like nothing about him, but he comes and he tells Job, uh, God is just. Uh, God runs the world by his justice, but maybe the suffering that you're going through is actually preparation or warning to avoid future sin. Maybe God's preparing you for something in the future. So a different view. And he also throws in there to Job, hey, Job, like not a good idea to accuse God. Not, should not do that. So this is, I mean, that was a really brief, that is Job 3, chapters 3 through 27, just this discourse between Job and his friends going back and forth. And so what's happening here is Job's suffering, and these men come and say, okay, Job, we know you're upset, we know you're frustrated, we know you're hurt, we know that you are bitter and angry, um, but we're here to help. And from what we've gathered here on earth, from our experience, uh, and from our wisdom, this is what's going on. From our definitions of wisdom and what makes sense, from what we could dig up, here's our conclusion. Problem is you. (laughs) And it just doesn't settle well with Job. He's not on board with their wisdom and conclusions and their explanation of his suffering. And then chapter 28. And in a very broad way, we'll come back to this, this answers, it's an answer to the question of suffering. It's a calm, reflective chapter on God's wisdom. So let me read. I'll read through Job 28, and I'll pray, and then we'll dive further in. Okay? Job 28. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from any, uh, where anyone lives, and they are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up 
uh, it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. The path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it, and the lion has not passed over it. Man put his hand to the flinty rock and overturned, overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rock, and his eyes see every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth. It is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it nor can it be exchanged for the jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out, and he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. God, we come before you today and we're just thankful for the opportunity to gather, to hear your word, to fellowship with each other, to praise you, God, for the amazing God that you are, for your love and mercy that you bestow on us every day. God, I pray that your word, your truth, would fall afresh on our hearts and on our minds and that we would be receptive to... um, to your spirit working through this passage and also this invitation that you extend uh, for us to draw near to you, to draw close to you, Lord, to trust you. Be with us this morning, and it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. All right, I am excited. Job 28. This chapter is uh, a bit distinct. A bit more background before we dive into the verse. Uh, The chapter before this, chapter 27, and the chapter after this, chapter 29, both start with the phrase, Job continued speaking. It's a bit odd because Job is speaking this whole time. So why do we need to know that Job is just continuing to speak? Uh, Dr. Timothy Mackey presents a certain view that I like and I'm going to share with you. He says that the author of Job is trying to get your attention by paying attention to what's in between these chapters. So we know that Job is speaking before this. We know that Job is speaking after this. But this chapter is supposed to stick out. And that phrasing is signaling in a way, hey, this is, this is different. And whether it's the author of Job or it's Job himself who wrote this, the important part is that it is distinct from the rest. The discourse of Job and his friends is before this, and a different discourse follows this. This chapter takes a different tone. 
It's very calm. Job and his friends are kind of all riled up and they're presenting their views. And we come to this, uh, this poem that is different than those cycles of speech. And right from the beginning, we can know it's a different tone because they're talking about suffering and God and who God is. And this verse comes in and says, hey, reader, you know what's interesting? Mining. Mining's pretty cool. And you're kind of like, what? What are we talking about right now? And so verse 1 starts, and there's a mine for silver. There's a place for gold that they refine. And you're like, okay, interesting. Then verse 2 is talking about smelting ore and, and copper, and we're, we're getting really into the resources of earth, and you're just kind of like, all right, I have no idea where this is going, but yes, we, this is, these are all true things. Talking about um, way down in the darkness, these men hanging from ropes where no one else is, swinging to and fro, and you get this picture, and you're like, is he talk, he's talking about cave spelunking. Like he's talking about going way down into caves and just being down in the darkness where no one else is. Verse 5 is talking about the hotness found beneath the surface of the earth. Um, a professor apparently has been there. I, I have not been over there. That would be great one day. But he says that in this area they would know of uh, tar pits that are near. And so this hotness that comes from the earth. Verse 6, the stones are the places of sapphires and it has dust of gold. So referring to the very precious things found deep down in the rocks and the gold found below the earth. This poem so far is just describing how man can go all sorts of places into the earth, way down below the surface, and go get resources, precious things that nothing else, where nothing else is found. And then it continues to say that no one else, nothing else goes there. Verse 7, the birds, they don't know how to get down there. Uh, verse 8, the beasts and the lion, they have not been on that path. So, And then verse 9 and 10 are just saying, Man can do a lot of things that the rest of creation cannot do. They can forge their own path. Man can find any precious thing on earth that they want to. Verse 11 talks about um, man's engineering abilities and how they can build up dams. And I love this part. Everything that is hidden, he brings out to light. That, that just says it right there. So props so far, authors, props to man. Props to man for their creativity, their ingenuity, their ability to gather and find precious things of the earth. Look at what man can do with simple tools and, and rope. I don't know what tools they had back then, but it wasn't bulldozers and dynamite and stuff. So, like, man's incredible. They're doing incredible things. But then verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? And this turns. This, this poem starts to turn. And verse 13 says, Man does not know its worth, and it's not found in the land of the living. What is the author doing here? He took us on this little journey through earth, and now he's saying, where is wisdom? Well, remember that whole discourse that I summarized uh, at the beginning of Job and his friends going back and forth, saying, this is how the world is. This is how, this is the wisdom that I have and, and what makes sense. And the author's trying to paint this juxtaposition of what just happened to Job and the man in this poem, and man be, in this poem, being able to find the deep, deep mysteries of earth, and saying that this is what Job's friends were doing. They were trying to find the deep, deep mystery of suffering, and they were trying to bring an answer to the surface and say, "This is what makes sense. We found the answer to suffering, Job. Here it is." 
And it's all, and the author's kind of saying, that was all fruitless. That was all, that all led to nothing, really. And I want to ask, does that sound familiar? If we just take a pause from this passage and come to present day, have you ever heard anyone say anything like, I have it all figured out. I've got all the answers. I know what true wisdom is and to help you on earth. Uh, have you ever heard of someone saying, I got something that's going to offer you no more pain or suffering, or here's the answer to the joy and success and happiness that you're looking for? I recently saw an infomercial with all of this included uh, from a guy who I thought his career was long over, but he comes on this infomercial and he says, I'm back, and I found the answer uh, to success and to happiness in your life, and you can have it too. And I'm sitting there like, who is, buy- who is buying this right now? But sadly, there are people out there that are buying what he's saying. But Job 28 says that he doesn't have the answers that he thinks he does. There are so many things today that promise to offer wisdom, that promise to give you the answers that you've been looking for. Again, uh, another example, my wife and I were watching a documentary series on the Church of Scientology. It was really interesting and sad and heartbreaking. But that founder of that is saying just this, I have found it. I figured it out. I know the answers to life. I've dug deep down into the earth, and I've brought the the answer to light. I have it. Um, And it's so wrong and so false. But it's very tempting when someone has answers to life's tough questions to want to believe them and to want to go along with them. But Job 28 says otherwise. And that's what the author of this poem is trying to convey to us. The author is trying to say that this is one thing that man cannot just go out and gather from the earth. It's not found in the mines and the caves or by damming up a river. This wisdom cannot be found like that. So where is it? Back to the text. Verse 13 says, It's not in the land of the living. Also, man does not know its worth. The author will really stress that heavily, that we don't know how much it's worth. Verse 14, the deep, it's not down there. And the bottom of the sea says, hey, it's not down here either. It's telling us in verse 15 that it cannot be purchased by gold or silver. 16, it cannot be measured by gold or an onyx or sapphires. I've never held a sapphire, but I feel like it would get me a lot of things. And this is saying wisdom is not one of those things. Verse 17, nothing equals it, nor can it be exchanged. Um, so again, this, the author is stressing all those things that man goes to great lengths to find, all the precious things of this earth, um, can't even come close to the value of wisdom, nor can it be used to attain wisdom. And the, I love verse 18. It's as if he's saying, I know, you're about, I know what you're thinking, and don't. I know you're thinking of corals and crystals, and don't do it because wisdom can't even be compared to, it, it, it just can't. And the price of wisdom is above pearls. So, And then that special topaz from Ethiopia, yeah, that cannot equal it either. And once again, just to be sure, if I haven't said enough, gold is not good enough. So this is, the author's just really stressing this over and over again. The best that the world has to offer cannot purchase or attain it. And so he asks again in verse 20, from where then does wisdom come from? And where is this place of understanding? And then 21, it starts to unfold a bit for us. It's not, it is hidden from the, uh, from the living and even the birds and death and the grave say, we might have heard a rumor about it one time. And then 23 through 27, this is beautiful 
points to God immediately. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heaven. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, talking about you know, atmosphere and the size of the oceans, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it, and he established it and, stre- and searched it out. Humans do the impossible. A lot of crazy things but they cannot go out and gather wisdom. Here is one thing that they are not capable of, to uh, divine wisdom, to sort out the greatest mysteries of the world, of, wh- of, of God's justice, of why bad things happen, of why there is suffering for good people. What's the meaning of it all? And humans just come up short. In verses 23 through 27, the author is telling us that God is the only one who knows. He sees everything on earth. Put the atmosphere in place. He made the ocean the right size. He made storms. He knows every detail of everything on earth. And when looking over everything, what does God use? He uses wisdom. Verse 28, And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. It's this idea that I mentioned at the beginning that God has this perspective that we are not privy to and we never will be. It's similar to a parent-child situation. You guys have been there in one or both of those positions uh, where they just have certain rules and boundaries that their child has to live in and operate in. For example, when I was a kid, I loved being outside and I would ride my bike. And when I started riding my bike with the little training wheels, I could only be on the driveway. Just stay on the driveway for safety reasons. Just stay there. And then when I grew out of my training wheels, I could go on the sidewalk but still stay out of the road. I grew up in a cul-de-sac. And so I just wanted to adventure outside of the area that I knew. And my dad, what made this worse is my dad would tell me stories of when he was a kid. And I know it's a different time. But he would say, like, oh, yeah, we would, my friends and brothers and I, we would get on our bikes and we would leave after breakfast and not come back till dinner. And we're riding miles and miles and miles way out into the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, yes, that is what I want. All right, I'm out of here. See ya. I'm on my bike. I'm going miles and miles just like you, Dad. And my mom would say, don't leave the cul-de-sac. No, I cannot. (laughs) My dream. I can't leave this cul-de-sac. I can't even go 100 feet. And these kids, and this is for a long time. This isn't just when I was little. This is like 12, 13. I'm in junior high, and I cannot leave my cul-de-sac. It seems wrong. And all these other kids, some younger than me, are able to leave, and they're riding around, and they leave the, they leave the cul-de-sac, and they come back hours later. And they're like, are you? This is relating to Job a little bit. Um, they're like, are, why can't you leave? Are you in trouble? And I'm like, no, it's not. this is not suffering. I am innocent. I haven't done anything. I just can't leave this court. I don't know why. That's, that's, the, that's as far as it goes. <laughs> but that's similar to that parent-child. God is, and Job is, you know, God's people, and God is saying, you know this much, I know this much. And it's hard. It's hard to live in that. Um, You see, each person in the story thought they had enough of a divine vantage point to say otherwise. Job thinks that he knows how God ought to run the world. Job's friends think that they know how God does run the world. Um, 
And my, my professor says it this way. This po poem is coming along saying, no, humans are smart and they can do a lot. But one thing that humans are unable to do is view the ends of the earth and see everything under the heavens. It's about perspective. God has ways to bring order out of the thunderstorms. And what is God using to do this? Wisdom. God has a wisdom that he has uh, to view all of creation. And what wisdom is available to humans? It's to trust God. That's the wisdom, is to trust God. Job is not trusting God. Um, his friends are not trusting God. And so this poem is saying God runs the world in ways that you don't always think he ought to. Uh, and what is wise for humans in that situation is to trust the Lord. God does not run the world by justice, but runs the world by his wisdom and always keeps his character in perfect, keeps it intact perfectly. God's got this bigger picture, this all-encompassing perspective, and that's what verses 23 and 27 are stressing, that God is the creator and that he's like a parent to us. And he just knows more. He knows what's good for us. So what do we do with this poem? What do we do with this Chapter 28, this calm, reflective, wisdom poem. I think it all comes down to one thing. I only have one thing. If you're taking notes, it's point one. That's it. That's all I got. But I think, in a way, it's, it's everything. And it's this invitation to trust God. We are invited to trust God. You see, trusting God is not just a command or instruction that the Bible tells us to do. It, it is that, but it's more than that. It's an actual personal invitation to trust God. And who is extending that invitation? God. God is extending this invitation to trust him. The author of Job is saying God wants his people to trust him. He wants Job to trust him. This is the beginning of wisdom. This is God's answer to the problem of suffering. Again, it's not the answer that we're looking for necessarily, but it's God's answer of, I see what you're going through, and do you trust me? This poem and this trouble with wisdom goes all the way back to Genesis. This, the fall happened because man had taken, taken up issue with God's wisdom, with what God called bad. I know, I just... I'm, way back to the beginning, but it'll all make sense. Come with me on this hyper-flight adventure to the Garden of Eden. Eve said that the fruit looked good, even though God said, don't do it. He said, hey, this, is, this would not be a good idea to do this, Adam and Eve. And Eve says, I think it is a good idea. And so she thinks that she knows what is good. She's operating on her own wisdom, what she thinks is right and wrong and good and evil, and it's wrong. The same happens. It's like every, you know, you read the Old Testament. It's a story after story of a person thinking that they know what is right. Same happens with Lot, with Moses, with David. They all thought they had a better idea of wisdom of what was right and what was good. And that pattern of sin continues today, where humans think that they have a better perspective of life than God does. Do you ever find yourself guilty of that thought? I know I do. Uh, just earlier this week at the prayer night here at the church, we had a time of confession, and it was so helpful for me to bring before God my struggle when thinking of the future, when thinking of how to provide for a future family and career and, and everything 
down that road, I, I suddenly merge into this lane of I know best and I can figure this all out and I need to be wise enough, I will be wise enough to make the right decisions. And just like that, I am like Job and I'm like his friends. I'm like Eve and Moses and David thinking that I might know better than God. So what is where is wisdom found? That first step is to trust God by invitation from God himself. Remembering that God has a perspective that we do not. God is God. He is the creator. He's the one that knows all things. And we have to learn to operate trusting God without knowing all the answers. That's super tough. We are people who want to know. Before we even sign up for something, we want to know all the details of what will this mean for me. And God is saying, I just need you to trust me. And again, I'm going to go back. I'm just going to, there's several stories in the Old Testament that prove just this. Uh, Noah is one that, has, that accepts this invitation to trust God when building the ark. He has no idea what's going on. And the, there's a flood coming. He's like, well, I don't know what a flood is, God. What are you talking about? And he accepts the invitation to trust God. Abraham is one who accepts the personal invitation to trust God. He leaves the land that he was in and trusts God and, go, and just follows him. And then again, Abraham with his son. He's way beyond the years of childbearing, and he has to accept this personal invitation to trust God and that God will. He doesn't know how it's going to happen, but God's going to provide. Moses must accept this personal invitation from God. And Moses has trouble with it. He doesn't, he's kind of has questions about God. He's not quite sure God knows what he's doing with Egypt. He's like, those are the Egyptians, God. I don't know if you've heard about them, but they're a big deal. They're huge and scary. And God's just like, just keeps extending that invitation of trust me. And then God shows up in the biggest ways. And finally, Moses gets the picture. Joshua must accept this invitation to trust God with Jericho. Uh, again, not knowing how it's going to work out. Saul is one who denies this gift. He denies the invitation. And we see, if you read in 1 Samuel, the, the accounts of Saul, you just see how foolish he is in his reign because he denied the invitation to trust God. And then there's David who accepts this invitation from a very young age with Goliath and slaying a giant. And uh, David is viewed as a very wise king because he continues to accept that invitation and trust and trust and trust. And then Solomon, like we mentioned at the beginning, a very wise king, and he accepts this invitation to trust God and is just blessed with incredible wisdom. Then we come to the New Testament, and Jesus Christ extends this invitation in a whole new way. And it's not, it's, it's trust, it's believe, it's follow. And he is God, he's just saying, do that, trust me, follow me, believe in me. And so this is the answer to the question, is God just? Does God run the world according to his justice? Why is there suffering? And Job 28 comes along after that whole fruitless conversation between Job and his friends and says, I am God, will you trust me? So the question is for you today, here at East Parkway, all of you, do you trust God? Will you trust God? Whatever you're going through, uh, whatever it is that's troubling you, that's just wrecking you, is keeping, uh, keeping you from living in peace, are you going to trust God with it? There's more to it than that. This is just the start. We start here, though. We, we, we exercise wisdom. We start by taking that step and saying, we trust God. Where wisdom is found is in that accepting the invitation. And that invitation is personal. 
He's, God is asking each and every one of you in whatever you are going through to trust him. And so I hope that you do again and again and again day after day. Amen. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this poem that you've given us in Job 28 where we can just see um, first how you have made us very capable and we can do many things but we cannot do it on our own. And Lord, that we need you. We need your love. We need your wisdom. We need to fear you, God. And so I pray that um, this morning and as we continue on in our day and in our week, that that question will just come before us over and over again. Are we trusting you? The things that are going on in our lives, are we trusting you with them? And I pray that you would help us to, to lay those down before you, to give them up, to surrender to you, God, to trust you with everything that we have, that our faith would grow. We know you are good, God, and we praise you for this. Amen.